Solar freaking roadways. What are they? They're solar freaking roadways. What do they want from me? Well, they're solar freaking roadways. Okay, so actually this time, what is it? It's technology that replaces all roadways, parking lots, sidewalks, driveways, tarmacs, bike paths, and outdoor recreation surfaces with solar panels. And not just lifeless, boring solar panels. Smart, microprocessing, interlocking, hexagonal solar units. No more useless asphalt and concrete just sitting there baking in the sun, needing to be repaved, and filling with potholes that ruin your axle alignment on your sweet ride, bro. These are intelligent solar panels. Replace the panel at a time if damaged or malfunctioning. They're covered with a new tempered glass material that has been designed and tested to meet all impact, load, and traction requirements. Oh, and did I mention that they're also solar panels? They generate electricity, they generate capital. They pay for themselves and they keep paying more because we're not gonna run out of sun for like 15 billion years. That lowers the cost of energy, unlike those bills in the mail that keep going up. And it's clean energy. Everyone can theoretically drive an electric car with no pollution and a minimal carbon footprint. Can you imagine how good our cities would smell? How much healthier we'd all be? Excuse me, young man, am I being led to believe that this thing is some sort of thing? Yes, it's a thing. A real thing. And clean energy is only its primary function. Grab a notepad because this is where it gets interesting. Hello everybody and welcome to Thermonuclear Takes, our roundup of all the news in science and technology that's been fascinating me lately. Some of it is going to relate to things that we've discussed on the show before, some of it will relate to things that we'll discuss in the future, and some will just be plain interesting. So I've got a couple of stories this week. I wanted to kick off this episode by talking about Ben Franter. So those of you who've been listening for a while, and those of you who haven't should definitely go back and hear these episodes, you'll remember Ben Franter. We interviewed him. He's a scientist, historian, and activist, and we talked about what you can do to impact climate change. And his focus was actually on taking as much political action as you can to influence the real emitters in government and in the cases of major corporations, rather than necessarily doing things like stopping driving or stopping flying, which might have a smaller impact than what you can do to contribute to greater societal change. And as part of that interview, we talked about his, his latest research, which is mostly about what fossil fuel companies knew about climate change and their attempts to conceal this information. Well, Ben has just published another excellent article in The Guardian that deals with some of these internally circulated ExxonMobil climate change reports, and it's really, really remarkable. So here are some extracts from his story. Quote, In the 1980s, oil companies like Exxon and Shell carried out internal assessments of the carbon dioxide released by fossil fuels, and forecast the planetary consequences of these emissions. In 1982, for example, Exxon predicted that by about 2060, CO2 levels would reach around 560 parts per million, double the pre-industrial level, and that this would push the planet's average temperatures up by about 2 degrees Celsius over then-current levels, and even more compared to pre-industrial levels. Elsewhere in its report, Exxon noted that the most widely accepted science at the time indicated that doubling carbon dioxide levels would cause a global warming of 3 degrees Celsius. Now let's be clear about this, there's a truly remarkable graph in the Exxon report that I'm going to tweet out at PhysicsPod if you'd like to see it. It shows that in the 1980s, when Exxon wrote this report, they had projected that by 2020, carbon dioxide concentrations would reach 420 parts per million in the atmosphere, and global mean temperature increase would be 1.1 degrees Celsius. Now it's 2018, that's pretty close to 2020, carbon dioxide concentrations are 410 compared to 420, and global mean temperature increase has reached around 1 degree Celsius compared to 1.1. In other words, the predictions that were made in the 1980s by ExxonMobil are astonishingly accurate. Back to the article then. Quote, Later that decade, in 1988, an internal report by Shell projected similar effects, but also found that CO2 could double even earlier by 2030. Privately, these companies did not dispute the links between their products, global warming, and ecological calamity. 
On the contrary, their research confirmed the connections. Shell's assessment foresaw a 1 metre sea level rise and noted that warming could also fuel disintegration of the West Antarctic ice sheet, resulting in a worldwide rise in sea level of 5 to 6 metres. That alone would be enough to inundate entire low-lying countries. Shell's analysts also warned of the disappearance of specific ecosystems or habitat destruction. They predicted an increase in runoff, destructive floods and inundation of low-lying farmland and said that new sources of fresh water would be required to compensate for changes in precipitation. Global changes in air temperature, said Shell, would also drastically change the way that people live and work. And their report also said that the changes may be the greatest in recorded history. If we go to quoting from the Exxon report, Exxon warned of potentially catastrophic events that must be considered. Like Shell's experts, Exxon scientists also predicted devastating sea level rise and warned that the American Midwest and other parts of the world could become desert-like. Looking on the bright side, though, Exxon expressed its confidence that this problem is not as significant to mankind as nuclear holocaust or world famine. It's always good to know that the bad things you're doing aren't as bad as nuclear war, right? The documents make for frightening reading, and the effect is all the more chilling in the view of the oil giant's refusal to warn the public about the damage that their own researchers predicted. Shell's report, marked confidential, was first disclosed by a Dutch news organisation earlier this year. Exxon's study was not intended for external distribution either. It was leaked in 2015. Nor did the companies ever take responsibility for their products. In Shell's study, the firm argued that the main burden of addressing climate change rests not with the energy industry, but with governments and consumers. That argument might have made sense if oil executives, including those from Exxon and Shell, had not later lied about climate change and actively prevented governments from enacting clean energy policies. So that's all we have from the article. So this is the story then. ExxonMobil, Shell and other fossil fuel companies knew, before it was in the mainstream media, before it was widely brought to public attention, that carbon dioxide emissions due to human activity, which was driven by the activity they were doing in extracting fossil fuels and burning them, were going to change the climate. And they had even predicted many of the detailed negative effects that would arise from climate change. Now imagine you discovered some looming crisis that could spell disaster for millions of people around the world, something that could drastically change the way people live. A preventable slow-motion disaster that required the world to take action. Imagine you were profiting from keeping that disaster a secret. Well, that's the situation that fossil fuel companies were in in the 1980s. Now, the most moral thing you could do would be to tell the world and ask for help in addressing the problem. At the absolute minimum, if you know that you're causing this problem, you should stop contributing to the problem yourself. Try and change your ways and prepare for the future. But the fossil fuel companies did not tell anyone of their scientific findings. These reports were kept secret for decades. Imagine if Shell or Exxon had said when climate scientists were first warning about global warming, that they had conducted all of this internal research that confirmed it was true. We wouldn't have spent so many years dithering on the topic before belatedly deciding to take action. Imagine if they'd stepped up and taken responsibility for what they were doing, the side effects of what was going on. We wouldn't have this problem where there's still such a huge number of people and political parties that are denying the issue. Now, if you think that a few years to be certain of the science doesn't make a difference, bear in mind the following statistics. Between 2000 and 2015, we emitted around 500 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. From 1800 to 1999, we emitted 1,000 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. In other words, during the time that Exxon and Shell lied to the public about climate change, the problem got almost twice as bad. Carbon emissions, the amount that we dump into the atmosphere annually, they've almost doubled since the early 1980s. 
and the total amount that we've emitted has also almost doubled since the early 1980s. So not only have we done twice as many bad things, but we're also doing them at twice as quick a rate now. But of course it's worse than that. Not only do the companies keep quiet about what they'd found, not only do they make no serious efforts to change the business model they knew was so damaging to the environment, but they actively lied about it. They funded deniers and scientists who were aiming to cloud the issue of climate change. And there's lots of this in Naomi Oreskes' book, Merchants of Doubt. They spent millions lobbying politicians to prevent environmental regulations that would have helped to address the problem. What gets me so much about these stories is the accusations that climate scientists, and indeed anyone who talks about climate change, myself included, has to deal still with occasional accusations and allegations. People say it's a conspiracy theory that climate scientists have invented or exaggerated the problem to get funding. I mean, if this was a scam, it's not a very lucrative one, I think, as I eye my PhD research grant, half the average starting salary for undergraduates with my degree. It amazes me that people can't see the conspiracy theory right in front of their eyes. Imagine that you're looking at two groups of people. One is a group of low-paid PhD students, job-insecure postdocs, and the occasional, you know, medium-wage professor. And the other is the billion-dollar fossil fuel industry. Which of these people do you think has the biggest motivation to lie to you about climate change? The billions of dollars made by fossil fuel companies in the years since 1980, they're the people who benefit from misleading the public. We have the documents to back it up. And in a just society, rather than running around saying that society is doomed, or spending millions of dollars of taxpayer money on adapting to climate change and preparing for the negative changes to come, we would impose some kind of penalty on the people who knew full well that they were selling off the planet's future to make a quick buck. If someone has to pay, for example, to capture and bury the millions of tonnes of carbon dioxide underground, as the latest science says we must do to avoid dangerous climate change, then first and foremost it should come out of the profits of those companies that have misled us. It's a broader problem that we have at the moment where corporations are being treated as people in the sense that they have freedom of speech rights and in the sense that they have certain other types of legal rights, but they're not being held responsible in the same way that people would be if they were doing these things. Ben Franta's excellent work Millie confirms that these companies were not ignorant of the danger. They knowingly sold us all down the river, and they should pay the price. So moving on from the hypocrisies and rage-inducing nonsense associated with fossil fuel companies, let's talk about some silliness associated with people who are trying to create a renewable energy future. So there's been a spate of articles recently about solar roadways. So this all started, as many dubious things do, with a viral crowdfunding campaign. Solar freaking roadways. What are they? They're solar freaking roadways. What do they want from me? Well, they're solar freaking roadways. Okay, so actually this time, what is it? It's technology that replaces all roadways, parking lots, sidewalks, driveways, tarmacs, bike paths, and outdoor recreation surfaces with solar panels. And not just lifeless, boring solar panels. Smart, microprocessing, interlocking, hexagonal solar units. No more useless asphalt and concrete just sitting there baking in the sun, needing to be repaved, and filling with potholes that ruin your axle alignment on your sweet ride, bro. These are intelligent solar panels. Replace the panel at a time if damaged or malfunctioning. They're covered with a new tempered glass material that has been designed and tested to meet 
meet all impact, load, and traction requirements. Oh, and did I mention that they're also solar panels? They generate electricity. They generate capital. They pay for themselves, and they keep paying more because we're not going to run out of sun for like 15 billion years. That lowers the cost of energy, unlike those bills in the mail that keep going up. And it's clean energy. Everyone can theoretically drive an electric car with no pollution and a minimal carbon footprint. Can you imagine how good our cities would smell? How much healthier we'd all be? Excuse me, young man. Am I being led to believe that this thing is some sort of thing? Yes, it's a thing. A real thing. And clean energy is only its primary function. Grab a notepad because this is where it gets interesting. Yep, there we go. There's another five minutes of that. And the video has 22 million views on YouTube alone. And the associated campaign has raised $2.2 million in crowdfunding on Indiegogo alone, more than doubling its original goal. Okay, so I love solar panels as much as the next person, probably a lot more. And on the surface, this might seem like a fairly okay idea. After all, roads are already paid services, human-influenced. You could easily imagine a scheme or law where a government decides that all new roads, or all replacement retarmacked roads, have to be made from these solar roadways. Roads tend to link cities in places people inhabit, and they're most densely concentrated in cities where the power needs are the greatest. So you don't have that many problems in transporting and distributing the energy because, you know, you have links between cities. Those are the roads already. And, you know, my dream scheme involves plastering solar panels in the Sahara Desert. It's probably a little trickier to get the electricity to where it's needed then. And what's more, this scheme wasn't total vaporware. It wasn't like they were lying about what they had invented. The solar roadways guy had actually demonstrated a working prototype that you could drive on without destroying it, and which generated power. By some back-of-the-envelope estimates, around 0.2 to 0.5% of the world's land surface is covered in roads, and their numbers are only going up. And of course there were some side benefits too. Combine it with LEDs and you have street lighting, signage, road markings if you like. You can even dream that one day with wireless power transmission, electric cars could be powered by the very roads that they're driving on. So yes, the idea of driving around on a solar panel might sound a little bit far-fetched, but it did have a lot of enthusiastic support by governments and companies, I guess because the vision of it is, is quite compelling in some ways. The Chinese started building one early last year, which will sandwich two kilometres of solar panels between transparent asphalt and a layer of insulate beneath. And it was just the latest in a long line of attempts. Unfortunately, though, solar roadways needs a little bit more than just this momentum, and sceptical voices began pouring in almost straight away. David Biello, writing in Scientific American, noted that the glass for the roadways must be tempered, self-cleaning, and capable of transmitting light to the PV below, under trying conditions, among other characteristics, a type of glass that does not yet exist. Now, the Chinese road, which used a transparent asphalt instead of glass, might surmount the problems with the glass, as the builders claim that it can withstand ten times more pressure than the normal asphalt. Building solar roads is not a one-man or a one-country operation either. Prototypes were constructed in the Netherlands, a cycle lane that was constructed by a company called Solar Road, and in France there was a project that was claimed to be the first solar panel road. These projects have been generating power for some years already, so the idea is not in principle impossible. Unfortunately, there's a big, dream-filled gap between not impossible and practical. Things can be not impossible, but that certainly doesn't mean they're going to happen. So for a start, there's the price. If you look at Scott Brusor, who was the guy who did the solar freaking roadways commercial, if you look at his solar roadways, the cost of replacing all of the roads in the US with the solar roads would come in at a cool $56 trillion. So the Indiegogo campaign won't quite cut it. 
There's broad political agreement that the US does need infrastructure investment, although they seem to be a little bit distracted with political things at the moment. But the additional investment required for solar roadways might be a hard sell. China's solar roadway with the fancy asphalt, that cost $458 per square metre, compared to Brussels' 746 That's an improvement, but again, it's likely not enough. So despite the fact that the governments have already invested millions of dollars in solar roadways of one kind or another, the evidence already began to suggest that, yeah, this future wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And of course, there are lots of other rather obvious reasons that this isn't a fantastic idea. For a start, there's a reason why solar farms are built where they are. They're usually built in areas where there's a lot of sunshine. Makes sense. Then, of course, there's the fact that people drive over the roadways. Some fraction of the sunlight is blocked by cars. It might be small, but you need to keep the road very clean if you don't want the dirt from those cars to cut down the efficiency even more. Then, of course, you need to produce this special kind of glass or asphalt in huge quantities. Ever notice how most solar panels in solar farms are at an angle? That's not an accident. Pointing the solar panel straight upwards is only the most efficient thing to do if you're directly on the equator. Otherwise, you capture the most sunlight throughout the day by tilting the panels. And it's even better if you can have them mounted on a tracker that moves with the seasons to point in the best direction, depending on where the sun is. So a solar roadway forced to be flat is always less effective than a tilted panel. But let's assume that you decide that none of this really matters, and that solar freaking roadways are way too cool to pass up. What do you get for your $56 trillion if every road in the USA was replaced by a solar road? Well, alongside tripling the national debt, according to my calculations based on the solar road cycle lane figures for how much power they can generate, you're generating around 600 gigawatts of power. It's actually slightly more electricity than the US actually consumes at the moment. So ignoring all of the problems with nighttime and wintertime versus summertime, let's imagine that you sort it all out with storage for a few extra trillion dollars. Solar roadways would actually allow you to power the USA. The only problem is that there's a 580 megawatt facility, solar farm, in San Luis Obispo called Solar Star. It costs $2.5 billion to build. So you could build a thousand of those instead in various suitable desert regions. It'd probably cost you less than 25 It would probably cost you less than $2.5 trillion, which is much closer to, for example, the recent tax cut bill which was passed in the US. And you'd have pretty much the same generating power as the solar roads for less than one twentieth of the price. But there's no need to take my word for it, you can compare like for like. In one of the recently published articles about solar roads, they examined the France prototype in detail. Quote, One of the first solar roads to be installed is in Tourouvre-au-Pouche, France. I'm so sorry, French people. This has a maximum output of 420 kilowatts, covers 2,800 metres squared, and costs 5 million euros to install. That implies a cost of €11,905 per installed kilowatt. While the road is supposed to generate 800 kilowatt hours a day, some recently released data indicates a yield closer to 409 kilowatt hours a day. For an idea of how much this is, the average UK home uses around 10 kilowatt hours a day. So that's about 40, 40 homes. The road's capacity factor, which measures the efficiency of the technology by dividing its average power output by its potential maximum power output, is just 4%. By contrast, a nearby solar plant in Bordeaux, which features rows of solar panels carefully angled towards the sun, has a maximum power output of 300,000 kilowatt hours and a capacity factor of 14%. 
at a cost of 360 million euros, or 1,200 euros per installed kilowatt, one-tenth the cost of our solar roadway, it generates three times more power. So there you go, you've got three times more power for one-tenth the cost in a solar farm compared to the French solar road. And elsewhere they note that the prototype data from the Solar Freaking Roadways company of the earlier clip suggests that it's 20 times less efficient than the equivalent solar panel farm, which goes some of the way to explaining why it's at least 20 times more expensive. So, yes. The pretty obvious reality here is that, as cool as solar roadways sound, they are far from ideal. Literally building solar panels alongside the roadway would be far cheaper and far more efficient. And more cheaper and more efficient still, you could build many solar panels in an area where there's a lot of incoming solar energy and sunshine, and oh wait, that's what we do already. So the crowdfunding campaign had $2.2 million worth of funding. These various government projects in China and France and places like this have had more millions of dollars worth of funding, and you just think, if you'd actually sat down and done some back-of-the-envelope calculations, you would have realised that as cool as this project sounds, and as good as it might be for PR, if what you're actually interested in is generating power and showing that renewable energy can be done cheaply, this was a really, really bad idea. But what if you're really, really keen not to spoil any of nature with nasty panels? Well, we have an existing technology that's even more effective than solar roadways in an urban setting. So there's 2 billion square metres of roadway in the UK that could be turned into solar roads if you wanted to. But there are 18 billion square metres worth of roofs, and not many of them have solar panels on them. Rooftop solar is cheaper, it's been demonstrated, it's been proved to work, it's close to buildings because it is on top of buildings, and it's more tried and tested than these solar roadways. It can be deployed pretty quickly compared to digging up and resurfacing the entire M42. So, the good news is that solar panels are getting cheaper at an astonishing rate, and energy storage solutions are being found. The bad news, or perhaps the obvious news, is that the idea of solar roadways sounds far cooler than the reality. Renewable energy advocates have to focus on what actually works, and we don't need gimmicks or fantasies anymore. In many places, these solar panels are already the cheapest form of energy. We know that the price of solar panels is going to fall further, while the price of fossil fuel generation is unlikely to go down because it's been mature technology for a hundred years and the resources, the conventional resources of coal and oil and natural gas, are being depleted. You don't need viral marketing, you don't need anything flashy, you don't need solar freaking roadways. You just need the facts. Okay, that's as long as I should rant for today. But there are a few more news stories that caught my eye lately. I'll save them up for a future episode of Thermonuclear Techs. Until next time... There's plenty of things you can do to support the show. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. I learned recently that actually the only thing that counts in the iTunes ranking is people subscribing. So if I had all of you sat at home just clicking subscribe, unsubscribe, subscribe, unsubscribe, it would probably do more to get attention for the show than telling your friends even. Although you should tell your friends also. The other things you can do, follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. You can visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com. Those of you who've been listening carefully will notice that we have a sister podcast, Autocracy Now, which is still doing shows about Stalin. We've got about three more Stalin shows left, and then we're going to move on to Huey P. Long. And if you don't know who Huey P. Long is, and you're even remotely interested in current US politics, I think you'll really enjoy that, because the parallels between 1920s Louisiana and the modern day are just incredible. Um... On this show, well, we're building up to all kinds of things. I've got some thermodynamics episodes coming up. Uh, I've got 
I've been working on an incredibly long series on nuclear fusion. We're going to go through the whole history of nuclear fusion from, well, from the atomic bomb right the way to ITER and the modern day tokamaks. And I've got more than a dozen episodes on nuclear fusion ready to throw at you guys. So I, I got an email the other day from people saying they're wondering, is this show going to still be around? Well, at least until I finish that, it is. <laughs> and that's going to take a few months. So I hope you're all ready to learn everything there is to know about nuclear fusion. Um, well, of course, you won't learn everything. We won't even scratch the surface, but it'll still be fun. So, yes, follow on Twitter, listen to the show, subscribe on iTunes, and um, be kind to each other. And we'll see you soon. Solar freaking roadways. What are they? They're solar freaking roadways. What do they want from me? Well, they're solar freaking roadways. Okay, so actually this time, what is it? It's technology that replaces all roadways, parking lots, sidewalks, driveways, tarmacs, bike paths, and outdoor recreation surfaces with solar panels. And not just lifeless, boring solar panels. Smart, microprocessing, interlocking, hexagonal solar units. No more useless asphalt and concrete just sitting there baking in the sun, needing to be repaved, and filling with potholes that ruin your axle alignment on your sweet ride, bro. These are intelligent solar panels. Replace the panel at a time if damaged or malfunctioning. They're covered with a new tempered glass material that has been designed and tested to meet all impact, load, and traction requirements. Oh, and did I mention that they're also solar panels? They generate electricity, they generate capital. They pay for themselves and they keep paying more because we're not gonna run out of sun for like 15 billion years. That lowers the cost of energy, unlike those bills in the mail that keep going up. And it's clean energy. Everyone can theoretically drive an electric car with no pollution and a minimal carbon footprint. Can you imagine how good our cities would smell? How much healthier we'd all be? Excuse me, young man, am I being led to believe that this thing is some sort of thing? Yes, it's a thing a real thing. And clean energy is only its primary function. Grab a notepad, because this is where it gets interesting. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.